Last weekend, the United States and the Taliban entered into an agreement, not a peace deal, not a ceasefire, an agreement for bringing peace to Afghanistan. And to help us understand this latest development and to put the wider conflict into perspective, I'd like to welcome my friend Matt Ho to At The Table. Matt, thank you for spending some time with me on this conversation. Oh, thanks, Jared. Thank you for having me on. Matthew Ho is a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy. You and I first met 10 years ago after you had resigned your position as a State Department officer in Afghanistan, and that was in protest of the first wave of Obama administration ramp up in that conflict. For people who don't have the pleasure of knowing you over the last decade, can you give them a sense of your military and diplomatic background and why you chose to leave the role you did when you did. Yeah, uh, thanks for giving me the opportunity to explain it. Um, I, I spent 10 years in the Marine Corps. I was in Iraq uh, twice, and then I went to Afghanistan as a, uh, a appointed foreign service officer. Um, and uh, when I got to Afghanistan in 2009, um, after, after being in Iraq and after uh, working on uh, the war policies, I was morally and intellectually broken, um, but I did think that there was the opportunity for the Obama administration, um, which you know was just coming into office at that point, to do things differently in Afghanistan. And there were comments from uh, you know President Obama himself, uh, you know General Petraeus, uh, and others in the administration that the conduct of uh, the Obama administration in Afghanistan was to end the war, was to, uh, uh, you know, in many ways, and General Petraeus himself said this a number of times uh, in 2008, uh, to have conversations with the Taliban, basically, and to find um, a, a negotiated peace, uh, much as had occurred with the Sunni insurgency in Iraq in 2006, 2007, 2008. Um, and that was my experience in Iraq was during those times as well. So, I went into Afghanistan expecting um, that as a political officer with the State Department, I would be doing that type of work, uh, helping to bring about uh, some type of, uh, of negotiated settlement. And the opposite occurred. Uh, and in my opinion, uh, the Obama administration was no different than the Bush administration, that uh, military victory was what uh, was uh, in the interest of the administration that the uh, escalation of the war in Afghanistan was being done to prove that President Obama was a better commander in chief than President Bush was, that uh, the Pentagon was getting a chance to get a win because no one was ever going to look at, at Iraq as a win, um, and that this was uh, ultimately about more about domestic U.S. politics than about Afghanistan or the Afghan people. Um, so about five months into my time there, after 40,000 American troops had already uh, come into the country, after President Karzai won an incredibly illegitimate uh, you know, and fraudulent election, um, and, and as I saw, again, these parallels between Iraq and Afghanistan that were very clear to me, um, again, I was morally and intellectually broken. And so uh, yeah, I resigned in protest over the escalation of the war. Um, and yeah, then uh, met you, Jared, uh, five or six months after that, probably. Um, and um, yeah, here I am 10 years later, um, still engaged in uh, anti-war anti or peace and justice work, or, you know, pushing for diplomacy, not war. 
uh, you know, doing things uh, I certainly never intended to do, certainly didn't think myself uh, as, as someone who would be doing uh, uh, something publicly. You know, I like to say before, uh, when I resigned in protest, and then my letter uh, and my resignation became front page news on the Washington Post. Prior to that, the last time I had been in a newspaper or any form of media was for high school track. You know, so like it was not anything, right? It was not anything I was prepared for, um, but also too, it was not anything I had any interest in. And here I am, uh, you know, 10 years later, still doing it. Um, there's been times, and, and you and I certainly have talked about our personal lives and everything. And there's been times over the last 10 years, I've tried to get away from working on these issues, from talking about the war, from, you know, of course. you know, and, and nothing, it, it keeps pulling me back into it. I keep getting drawn back into it. So yeah, but I'm happy to be, you know, here with you today. I'm really happy to, to, to speak with you on the podcast. And yeah, um, and I'm, I'm also very happy as flawed as it is, and we'll get into it. It's, it's very flawed, but I'm very happy that there is uh, some form of peace process underway in Afghanistan, because it's been way too long for the Afghans to have a shot at peace. I have so many follow-up questions. Let me start with what was your track event? Oh, I was a, uh, I was a middle distance guy. I was a half miler. I was a, uh, uh, he, you know, here's a, here's something that's like a, a good icebreaker for me all the time. I was a six time second place state champion. <laughs> I finished second six times in the state championships. Uh, so whether, whether that was in the individual 800 or whether that was in the four by 400, you know, or, um, I was also, also ran a mile. We had a very good track program where I was at and, uh, uh, you know, um, so, uh, uh, you know, I was, it, it also too, I'm still actually talk about, you know, we were just before we started this, right. We, you and I were talking about the benefits of this type of stuff, like the, this podcast service you use, Zencaster, the, you know, or whether it, the benefits of Skype or Facebook and talking uh, to people wherever they wherever are, they are but also connection. Yeah. But also too, re- retaining connections from the past and I'm, you know, very close to my track coach from high school and That's his fantastic. wife still. Yeah. I mean, I graduated in 91. So this is, uh, you know, 29 years ago now or however long. And um, yeah, to see and to, to still have Coach O'Rourke in my life is a really big deal for me. Um, and he actually still runs. And he actually uh, uh, last year was the uh, – he's in the 70s. He was the national <laughs> champion – for his age group in the uh, 1600 meter in the, in the mile, you know, I mean, it's fantastic. So like, see, know. this is why I'm so glad I asked because this is why I, the, these things, again, I said at the beginning, I know known you 10 years. I had no idea this was part of your life. And I'm so glad I did because it goes to one of the other follow-up questions I wanted to ask, which is about mental health. And we'll get to that a little bit later, but sure. you and I have talked a lot about that kind of stuff off the air. But one of the things I try to do on this podcast, because my emphasis over and over again is there does not need to be another straight white dude political podcast. We don't need, there's no, there's no demand market demand for my uh, opinions or analysis. So the best I can do to justify my presence here is to, you know, maybe if I can upset the power dynamics a little bit, if I can lance the boils of toxic masculinity a little bit, if I can talk about mental health vulnerability, that thing that, that I'm sure you in the Marine Corps and me, you know, being a a kid who was uh, bullied relentlessly, both of us learned that lesson in different ways in our lives, I'm sure, but we can talk about it. And so I hope that we get a chance to. But let me let me start sure. with a policy question, which is that you mentioned 
that the Obama administration was looking to prove that it was a better commander in chief than the Bush administration. And that's why they made this choice at the beginning of the Obama tenure. Has the Trump administration, in your estimation, done a similar thing by what the the, the Mattis McMaster ramp up from 8,500 troops to where they are now, a little over 11,000 uh, at the beginning of the Trump administration? We already know that Trump has tried to prove that he's better than Obama at any chance he can. Is this something that was analogous in your mind to what Obama was trying to do at the beginning of, of their, their respective tenures? Oh, absolutely. A- absolutely. Absolutely, yes, a hundred percent. Donald Trump's uh, pushing of this uh, peace process in Afghanistan is directly related to his campaign um, for re-election this year. Um, it's directly related to things he said uh, on the campaign trail or on Twitter in 2015 and 2016 about Afghanistan. Um, and you know, I, just uh, you brought up a good, uh, just a, as a side note, uh, something maybe you want to talk about later, or, or, or certainly happy to come back and talk about. You know, when, when that ramp up in forces under you know Mattis McMaster. Uh, Mattis being the Secretary of Defense and McMaster being the National Security Advisor to uh, President Trump in his first couple of years, um, you know, that it was a pretty small ramp up, right, from 8,500 to 12,000 or 13,000 or 14,000. One of the real awful things we've seen in this administration, you know, God, you could rank them. Oh, my God, there's so many. But one of the things was like with the wars, with the Department of Defense and with the Department of Defense, you've seen a very... Uh, a, a great uh, reduction in transparency. Um, so we don't even yes. know how many troops are actually in Afghanistan, how many are, are in other parts of the world. But one of the things that occurred in the, the second half of the Obama administration was that the, um, and this is really important to understand the U.S. wars overseas and future U.S. wars and how the U.S. Uh, war making machine operates now. The U.S. was, uh, U.S. military is very successful in transitioning from a, 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 and putting into practice, I should say, a policy of not having conventional forces on the ground doing the fighting, relying upon uh, uh, U.S. the U.S. Air Force and the U.S. Navy aircraft and drones, um, and then of course our special operations commandos, but then paired with uh, uh, allied forces, proxy forces, host nation forces, whatever you want to call them to do the uh, fighting on the ground, to do the proverbial heavy lifting. And that's why under Obama, when Obama comes into office in 09, when this policy, this idea has not really been able to be put into practice yet, um, you see President Obama go from 30,000 American troops in Afghanistan to 100,000 American troops in Afghanistan. But when Trump comes in and he wants to escalate the war, and he escalates the war to the same levels that President Obama does in terms of violence and actually greater in terms of the number of bombs drops, in terms of the number of people being killed, been greater under Trump than any other president. He's able to do it by just adding 5,000 more American troops because we, the United States military, the Department of Defense, has created this system where it has been able to use, and this is the case whether it's been in in Libya or Syria, uh, in Iraq, say using the Shia militias to fight the Islamic State, and in Afghanistan, having an Afghan National Army, having an Afghan National Police, having the CIA's paramilitary forces, which number in the tens of thousands, to do the actual, um, again, uh, for lack of a better term, heavy lifting, 
and doing the conventional fighting, manning the, the checkpoints, occupying uh, villages, etc., and then using the U.S. Air Force and U.S. Navy to support them with airstrikes, as well as then to our commandos uh, with highly trained, specialized Afghan commandos or Iraqi commandos um, or Kurdish commandos uh, in Syria to do, uh, um, you know, some of the more nastier uh, types of kicking in doors and shooting people uh, in their homes. Um, so that we've seen a real change in how the U.S. military is fighting these wars, and it's a permanent change, and it's something that helps the wars stay on a low boil, right, for people here in the United States or a simmer uh, where we're not seeing the casualties. I mean, last year was the deadliest war in Afghanistan for the United States uh, in a number of years, but still it was a couple dozen uh, killed. You know, it wasn't the 500 that were killed that right. President Obama was was, was seeing. So it, it's uh, um, the, the way the wars have been fought. But then to get to your point, absolutely, with President Trump, he this is uh, um, he comes in the office, he escalates the war. About two years after he's escalated the war, he says to Zameh Khalazad, his special representative for Afghanistan, go and negotiate a peace uh, or, or get a deal in place. And, you know, within a year, Khalazad had that deal. Uh, the deal was ready to be signed last September. And then President Trump, for lack of better terms, had a temper tantrum because, <laughs> I mean, and, and it wasn't because a Taliban killed a person that that deal was struck in September. But it was, in my opinion, because uh, there were commentators on Fox, there were commentators on Twitter, there were Republican members of Congress who were saying negotiating with the Taliban makes you look weak. Uh, you know, you're, you're, you're being defeatist. Uh, we're now now you've lost Afghanistan. And literally in the space of a couple of days, you see President Trump go from wanting to have this big ceremony, inviting uh, President Ghani of Afghanistan, the heads of the Taliban to Camp David to sign this agreement right. um, to saying it's all off. And but so what happens in in, uh, you know, last month in February, when the deal is signed between the United States and the Taliban, um, and I'm hesitant to use the word deal because, you know, I think you're the same way, it, but it's, it's the easiest semantically, it's the easiest thing to say, but we'll get more into that. But, but the, the, de the deal that they sign is exactly the same thing that was available in September, you know, I mean, so, but, but, but it is, this is, this is Trump um, doing this for his campaign. You know, he comes in, he's tough on the town, very similar to Nixon in Vietnam, comes in, he's tough on the Vietnamese, uh, he forces them to the table. He, you know, then he starts the bombing again to force them back to the table and they end up signing the same deal they could have had five, six years before with the North Vietnamese. The same things occurred with with the Taliban. And I will say that this is actually the very same deal that the United States could have had with the Taliban at any point in the last 18 years, um, because the Taliban, despite contrary to popular uh, myth, contrary to uh, what the United States government has said over and over again, uh, the Taliban have uh, been willing to negotiate um, a number of times throughout the last, you know, 18 years or so. Um, and the United States has spurned that because the United States has wanted, uh, under the Bush administration, they weren't really even concerned about Afghanistan. And then under the Obama administration, it was certainly that they were going to, they wanted military victory in Afghanistan. And the same with Trump. He came in and 
uh, maybe a little savvier, a little quicker on the uh, on his execution with it. But uh, you know, escalates the war, makes it look like he's tougher than Obama, and then he you know negotiates a deal that again they could have had really at any point in the last eighteen years. But I think about what you said, Matt, about the the nature of who the combatants are and how the Department of Defense, how the United States has chosen to essentially fudge the numbers to to uh, you know be either uh, perfectly opaque about the actual forces in play or have tried to rehouse some of the fighting forces under either different places within the United States government, private military contractors, Afghan national security forces, other members of the coalition. And I think about that in the context of the the deal that's in place, and and we've already seen in the last few days, the Taliban is very good at following the letter of this agreement in that they are not exacting violence on coalition targets, or U.S. targets, but they're doing it on Afghan security forces, bomb in uh, in a soccer stadium. You know, this is places mm-hmm. they're doing. The, the violence is ramped up. They're just not attacking anything that is specifically carved out. And so this gets to another problem of the of the circumstance that you described so thoroughly, which is that if you define your troop numbers narrowly and say that that's the only thing that's going to violate the agreement, you're leaving the wide majority of the actual human beings in Afghanistan up for grabs with a Taliban that's very willing to use violence still, even after this bringing peace deal, to get the ends that they want to achieve. This is why escalating the war in 2009 was a folly. This is why uh, invading Afghanistan in the first place when al-Qaeda um, you know, in, in 2001, you know, according to the FBI and according to the U.S. government and according to journalists like Peter Bergen, you know, um, the Al Qaeda, the Al Qaeda strength worldwide was between 200 and 400 members worldwide, not in Afghanistan, worldwide was between 200 and 400 people. Um, I mean, so the idea that you're going to go to war against an organization of 200 to 400 people, right? I mean, in hindsight, everyone would agree that's complete folly. That makes no sense, right? That's a very robust choir is what you're talking about. That's exactly right. You know, and that's my, you know, if you want to get, we get in discussions about 9-11 and everything. And like, when you look at it, you you understand that, well, how come Al-Qaeda hasn't really been successful in the last 20 years in launching an international attack? You've had really... uh, 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 really, uh, the, the people who've launched, uh, tried to adna- launch attacks have been literally mentally ill or they've been uh, um, uh, nefarious nincompoops. I mean, you think of the guy who tried to light his <laughs> shoe on fire, right? You think of the guy who tried to light his underwear on fire. All these guys were incompetent. They couldn't carry out a simple demolition operation. Um, and, you know, and so you look back and you say, okay, well, you know, it, it, and this is the reasons why the, really the only purpose that Afghanistan served for the nine 11 attacks, uh, was that was of course where bin Laden was, but in the nineties, there had been a series of attacks by Al Qaeda. Some had gone well, some had gone badly. And basically what at that point, by time 1999, 2000, 2001 comes around, bin Laden who doesn't have much of a role in al-Qaeda in its operations. That was certainly Zahiri, uh, Ayman al-Zahiri, who is still the leader of al-Qaeda. He's never been caught in 20 years or so. Um, uh, but, but bin Laden, as the leader, wanted to basically bless off on 
the people who would be conducting the attacks. So that's the purpose in the, the when the 9-11 hijackers went to Afghanistan, they did some training there, but nothing that was important. Um, certainly the most important training they did was in the United States and the American flight academies and the American martial sure. arts academies, right? But what Bin Laden wanted was he wanted people to kind of come in and kiss the ring and he wanted to vet them himself. So what you have, I think, one of the re- main reasons why you don't see Al-Qaeda doing a spectacular attack again, like since like they did a 9-11, was because they used literally the top five or top 10% of their manpower to do that attack. But, right. I mean, like the 19 hijackers, if you're talking about an organization of 200 to 400, that's five or 10 percent of the organization. And that and this is my opinion, is that they basically utilized their best manpower at that point to do that attack. And in the years following, the people who, who they did have, again, the underwear bomber, the shoe bomber, et cetera. <laughs> right. I mean, literally, we're we're we're, you know, uh, 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 you know, they were cartoonish. Um, however, um you know, to get back to your point about this deal and how precarious it is, um, and to your point too, yeah, when you're dealing with 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 the numbers, um, you know, that's all the Taliban has to do is just not attack U.S. or European forces. They are certainly, according to the the agreement that was signed in Qatar in February, allowed to attack everybody else. Uh, and right. aside from the Taliban, there are a number of other spoilers in this. Um, one, there are splinter groups that don't fall under control of the Taliban. Um, they are really composed of, 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 of hardliners um, who believe that the Taliban have been winning for the last, you know, 18 years or, or at, least, at least the last 13 or 14 years and see no need in negotiating that, you know, very similar to, say, people in the U.S., military victory right. is what they want. I mean, you have it. And this is something if we get into talking about Iran, you know, the parallels between U.S. and Iranian hardliners, like the only difference is that our guys speak English and their guys speak Farsi. Other than that, they are like literally the same people in terms of what they want to see happen. And it, that's why it's so dangerous, the, the situations <laughs> we're often in. But also, too, with the Taliban, uh, besides these splinter groups, and, and, and as well, these are also men who believe believe that, look, we withstood, uh, we, you know, our great, great grandfathers defeated the British, our grandfathers and our fathers defeated the Soviet Union. We have basically defeated the United States. We withstood the best the United States could do, the, the greatest superpower the world has ever known, et cetera. And, you know, so we do have God on our side. Why are we doing this? Um, and then you have groups like the Islamic State, which are completely uh, uh, opposed to the Taliban. They fight continuously. In fact, one of the purposes in this agreement, one of the things about this agreement is that the Taliban is supposed to turn its focus on organizations like the Islamic State and exterminate them. And which is fine for the Taliban because the Taliban view the Islamic State as a, uh, you know, as an existential threat, basically. Uh, but then on the other side, you have issues where one, um, it was you had presidential elections in Afghanistan back in September. It wasn't until the middle of February that a winner was announced. The incumbent president Ghani was announced as winner. Nobody believes that he won fairly. It was the third presidential election in a row that was uh, just completely illegitimate, uh, completely riddled with with fraud and, and, and stolen ballots and 
packed ballot boxes, et cetera, et cetera, just completely fraudulent. Well, at least we're able to export American style democracy. That that's very true. I mean, like it is, it is, it, it, it really is. The only thing they're behind, they don't have the electronic machines like we do, right? I mean, like they just got to catch up technology wise. However, um, so you have this situation where the man who has now been cheated out of three elections, Abdullah Abdullah, who uh, formed a national unity government in 2014 alongside of President Ghani, where he served as a CEO to President Ghani's you know, presidency, um, and uh, that which was like a total catastrophe, that arrangement. Nothing ever was able to be accomplished. It was just as, 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 as it was absurd uh, in so many ways. But he has basically said, enough, I'm forming a parallel government. So the problem you have now is you have two Afghan governments. Uh, if you're the Taliban, who do you negotiate with? If you're the Americans, who do you talk to, right? I mean, like, so you have these issues of having these very real parallel governments. This is not just like a shadow government that Abdul Abdul is going to form, you know, where it's just on paper and they make press releases whenever something happens, say like the Brits do where whoever the party is out of uh, power uh, has a shadow government. They have a shadow foreign minister. They have a shadow home secretary, et cetera. And whenever, you know, uh, the Tories do something that they don't like, their, their you know, shadow uh, uh, foreign minister will say something, you know, this is, this is actually going to be a, a, a real parallel government. Um, and then the other part is too, you have all these warlords that are nominally underneath the umbrella of the Afghan government. But these warlords have been incredibly enriched, uh, incredibly powered. They control large parts of territory. This last 20 years or so of war has been an incredible boon for these warlords. So what uh, they don't see a real interest in this war coming to an end for many of them. Some do, but for many of them, they don't see an interest in this because it's only going to mean that they could lose power. They could lose control. They could lose money. You know, certainly uh, many in the Afghan government and many, uh, 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 whether they're actual Afghan government per se or these, these warlords, Come drug lords too, because they're the biggest factor in the Afghan drug trade. Course, it's not yeah. the Afghan Taliban; it's the Afghan government and its allied warlords who are the biggest players in the drug trade. Um, but you know, the, the United States and Europe are is still sending billions and billions of dollars into Afghanistan every year that these men are getting rich from, right? That they're taking their very sizable cut from. So why do they see what's the what's the benefit of this you know arrangement coming to an end? And then, of course, you have American weapons companies, right? That don't want to see, right? Why? Why do they want to see this? We have, yeah, our- right? I'm- yeah, we have our own, right? I mean, like, why does why do these corporations, Lockheed or or, or, or General Dynamics or whoever, why do they want to see less bombs being manufactured, right? I mean, why? And, and then you have uh, the other element too in all this, and I mean, this is a long list of spoilers, right? Um, is the CIA. The CIA forces do not fall underneath this agreement. Some people say they do, but the CIA never falls under any agreement when they are doing covert operations by law, basically. They do not count. They do not exist. So the CIA has uh, its own army in Afghanistan composed of tens and tens of thousands of Afghan militiamen. That is completely uh, on its own, doing its own thing. So what's going to happen with that? So there's lots of spoilers, lots of complications, but since 1989, when the Soviet Union left, 
This is the first chance for peace the Afghan people have seen. They have been at war since before the Soviet Union invaded. When the Soviet Union invaded in 1979, um, 100,000 Afghans had already been killed. This didn't begin in December with the Soviet Union, uh, paratroopers coming in and tanks crossing the border, etc. This began uh, in the years prior to that. Uh, and, and a lot of that, the, 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 the assumption of this violence uh, comes back to the United States. Uh, uh, you know, Zygmunt Brzezinski, who was President Jimmy Carter's national security advisor, in the year prior to uh, the Soviet Union invading, he started funding these Islamic militant groups in Afghanistan um, in order to cause unrest, in order to fight the Afghan communist government, to create basically to bait the Soviet Union into invading, to create a trap for them, to give them their own Vietnam. And he was successful. They did. They fell <laughs> for the trap. Right. I mean, like and but of course, uh, you know, the blowback from that Al Qaeda, the Taliban, 9-11, our own 20 years of, of direct war in the country now. But most importantly, the suffering of the Afghan people. I mean, they have been have had known nothing but war for the last 40 some odd years. Um, and so this agreement, as imperfect as it is, uh, as much work has to be done as, you know, I, I'm. I wouldn't be putting too much, if I, was, I wouldn't go to Vegas, right, and put too much money on this thing working out. However, um, uh, it is the first and only uh, chance for peace that the Afghan people have seen in, since 1989, since the, since the Soviet Union left. Um, and so it is a, a chance that's well worth taking and, and you know, uh, everything should be done to support it. It's interesting that you find this moment of hope here because I, I always look at these these opportunities and say, okay, what are we missing here? And I think in the absence of the average American giving a damn about Afghanistan, maybe we should actually focus on what's better for the Afghan people. That's but let me get to a few points that you made because you, you said a lot here and and I was thinking about the numbers that you mentioned, the original population of, of terrorists starting at uh, two hundred to four hundred, and now the Part of this bringing peace agreement involves the United States releasing 5,000 Taliban prisoners. Again, it would be trite to say, what if Obama had done this? Because I think we all know how, what Republicans would oh, have God. done. Yeah. And, we can, and we should talk about that because Trump is going to get away with it from Republican commentators and, and elected officials in a way that Obama would never have been able to. But you also mentioned Vietnam, and I'm thinking about you know, the fall of Saigon in 1975. Are we likely to see other resources, including aid, follow troops out the door once this agreement, let's say the agreement does work as you, you know, you're saying you're not willing to bet on that, but let's say it does. And let's say we have a, a repeat of our other big foreign policy mistake of the last 50 years, 60 years, and we see the fall of Saigon in 1975. I'm fascinated by this analog because if Kabul is anything like it, um, we're going to see American aid, all of our other resources, foreign aid, all of their other resources abandon this country, creating a power vacuum again for people to do very nefarious things. Um, so talk about those two parts of this, because this sure. is this is the part of this bringing peace agreement that has gotten the most attention. The number of troops or excuse me, the number of prisoners that are being released, the hypocrisy that the administration probably won't face a lot of criticism from Republicans who would have been very happy to do so if Obama had done it. And then I think about this, this comparison. Is this apt to say that this is a, a big concern that for people who are looking where at where Afghanistan is right now, that it is 
not just for warlords, but dependent on this aid, and that aid could see a sunset very soon. Oh, absolutely. I can't imagine, one, the U.S. Congress appropriating very much money to Afghanistan um, if U.S. troops are not there. I, I just can't see that. I, I just don't think it's, it's politically something they would do. Um, the vast amount of aid is tied to the American troop presence. And as you said, when that leaves, and under the agreement, um, American contractors, all basically right. all non-diplomatic personnel, and the CIA, of course, on its own, uh, the different different story with them, but uh, but all non uh, diplomatic personnel. So basically, everyone except the U.S. embassy is supposed to leave. Right. Um, and with that, as you stated, Jared, the, the the money will go. And the problem is that Afghanistan has a GDP of about two billion dollars, and it costs just five billion dollars to run the government. I mean, right? I mean, so <laughs> just any way you look at it, um, and it's a country that. But despite the fact that the United States has spent uh, $125 billion or so on um, $125 billion or so on reconstruction of Afghanistan since 2001, there's literally nothing to show for it. Um, uh, you know, the plurality of that money never even leaves the United States. 40% or so of that money goes into U.S. corporate overhead, uh, doesn't even leave the United States. Um, and then when it does, uh, it, it's subcontracted out. You know, uh, the, the, the corruption in Afghanistan takes its cut. The security contractors take their cut. You know, so hardly anything actually ever reached a, a project site. Um, and more importantly, it, the whole thing was just a, a, a racket. The whole thing was just fraudulent. I mean, whether it's, you're looking at what the Special Inspector General for Afghan Reconstruction uh, said, you know, reported, um, or uh, journalists like, say, Asmat Khan uh, reported that 80 to 90 percent of the things that were reported as being built in Afghanistan, schools, healthcare centers, et cetera, were never built. That when, you know, inspectors or journalists went to look for these places, they didn't exist. Or it was the same school that had been built, say, in the 1950s, and obviously no one had touched it since the 1950s. <laughs> so there's a real, um, in the Afghan, I, I say all this to Afghanistan, there is no, the only viable industry in Afghanistan is the narcotics industry, is the drug trade, is the illicit drug trade. Um, and literally, there is nothing else. There's no road, road network, there's no electrification. Um, I mean, within Kabul, you have some things, and then maybe within a couple of the other cities. But for the most part, there is no infrastructure. The levels of violence over the 40 years have been so bad that um, things have been reduced so greatly. Again, no no infrastructure, no education, no electrification, no, uh, uh, you know, and in a flight of human of people that you have a real deficit in human capital. Um, yeah, I mean, the Afghanistan needs help. Um, the, and the, the, the question then comes is, is how do you bring about that help when um, the delivery of assistance has been a racket, as I said, it's been so uh, corrupt, it's been so, uh, uh, it's caused more damage than it's helped by far. Uh, how do you help uh, Afghanistan rebuild without being colonialist or being interventionist, right? I mean, how do you, how do you help Afghanistan, allow Afghanistan to be neutral, um, but at the same time, how do you provide that aid and assistance? But certainly to your point, I don't see, uh, uh, you know, the U.S. Congress appropriating money. Um, and I think there are, you know, you don't have to go to Vietnam for the parallels of the fall of Saigon. You can have the, the fall of Kabul in 1993. So the Soviet Union leaves in 1989. 
um, the uh, uh, Afghan communist government uh, holds on for another few years, basically until the Soviet Union collapses. And then when the Soviet Union collapses, the Afghan communist government runs out of money. I mean, runs out of support, you know, right? I mean, and then it, that collapses. And then you have, I mean, always was a civil war within the within Afghanistan. But, you know, starting in the, that, that early part of the ni- 1990s, like around 1993, you have the warlords, uh, the Mujahideen, they start fighting each other because, just as you described, you had this vacuum. Um, and that's the very real danger. You know, I mean, the, 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 the question you have to ask is, is which is, is better, the, the catastrophe that you know that's occurring in Afghanistan right now. And Afghanistan um, has been uh, at multiple times over the last 40 years, the most violent war in the country, the la- in the world. I mean, the last couple of years, it's been the most violent war uh, in the world uh, as the war in Syria kind of uh, um has been coming to a close. The Afghan war escalated under President Trump um, is the most violent war in the world. Um, you know, how, which is better, the catastrophe, uh, you know, the disaster that you know, or the potential one that you don't know? Um, and, you know, it, it goes back to this is a, you know, I mean, a, a, a story for the United States of, of, of this is why you don't build houses of cards. Right. Because, uh, you know, when 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 the time comes, that house of cards is going to have to fall. And what's it going to look like? You know, uh, what's going to happen? And so, yeah, I mean, certainly the status quo is not okay. The status quo cannot continue with this war continuing to go on, the suffering continuing to go on that way. But so there has to be some attempt at bringing it, bring it uh, uh, peace to the country. But uh, how do you do that? Uh, in a manner that doesn't cause the vacuum, like you so rightly stated, Jared, that would lead to collapse of the government and then, you know, possibly even worse fighting. And I think about, too, you talk about the example in Kabul, and I was talking about Saigon, but there's another example that I know you have an intimate experience with, which is, of course, Baghdad. Uh, The Bush administration chose in 2002, 2003 to divert forces away from uh, Afghanistan into a ramp up of what would eventually be the war in Iraq. And the result in many ways was the development of ISIS as an entity we've already mentioned several times here. So we've seen what can happen when you the, the devil you don't know uh, isn't considered as, as a potential problem. 